there are all these boxes, right? And it's like, well, this is the box that I fit in. And it's, and it's interesting, and I'm, I'm sure you know people like this, um, that want to somehow, at the earliest moments of meeting them, they want to roll their resume out to you. They want to make sure you know, this is, these are the letters behind my name, this is what I've accomplished. Um, somehow, no matter what the topic is, it like, whoosh, they work that in there, and why would they do that? Because they're wanting this value, uh, this validation. They want to be esteemed. They want to be identified as being an important person, at least in, in some regard. Even if it isn't them personally, hey, I'm the wife of, I'm the husband of, in that kind of thing. And, of course, these things always come up empty. All right, so let me give you a list of names, and, and uh, I want you to tell me, I want somebody to tell me what it is they all have in common. So Van Gogh was, you know, a world-renowned artist. Virginia Woolf, a, um, an award-winning uh, in, in uh, literature. Robin Williams, almost everybody knows who the guy is. As an actor, Kurt Cobain, world-famous musician. Anthony Bourdain, he was a chef, had his own TV show, wildly popular. What did they all have in common? Well, they are all dead. They all committed suicide. Right. And so what I'm getting at as well is that, you know, it, it can seem cliche, but man, is it true that these things don't provide lasting, you know. There is, here are people whose resume are legit. Like, they have a real earthly resume. Van Gogh, I mean, these people are recognized and are getting the praise and the validation that basically anybody within their particular field would be craving, they're just clamoring for, for um, authors to be recognized as Virginia Woolf was or, or to get the kind of work and, and recognition that Robin Williams did, and yet um, all of them clearly didn't, it, it wasn't fulfilling. Every one of them actually committed suicide. And so we're on a constant search for value for ourselves, and of course what we do on the flip side is we identify or we, we assign a certain identity to other people. We put, you know, we not only want that for ourselves, we also look at other people and we put them in boxes and in our own minds. And so there's this whole incredibly complex system that our culture has, that, that we grow up and we learn to categorize everything. And you think about um, a child that grows up and even ages out of the foster system. I mean, that's like a, a mark of death. If, if you grow up in the foster system all, and are passed around all the way to the point that you age out and they just kick you out of the system, the statistics of what their life is probably going to look like, I mean, are just abysmal. And so you take a person that, that grows up in that environment and the backdrop they have of being handed around to different families and whatever potential abuse took place within those families and the backdrop that they have there versus somebody else that uh, was born, you know, naturally very, very intelligent in a stable family and a physically attractive versus somebody else who maybe they're in a stable family environment, but they grew up very poor. They have their own, um, their own way of seeing the world because they just didn't have anything. Highly educated versus minimally educated, and we 
we create these versions or these views of ourselves and how much worth we have and we do the same thing for other people as you learn these things about other people, their background or how they look or how they talk. And I'm not even trying to contrast like somehow good versus bad. That's already thinking about things in the wrong way. They're just categories that we use. So at the end of it all, value or worth or dignity is not something that we achieve. We don't get to fill a resume with enough accomplishments to get to the point that we're like, now I have dignity, now I have worth, now I have value. And it's also not granted by others. I don't need Gerald to be the one to give me validation before I get there, or your wife, or your husband. You know, I, like somehow you, there's a particular person, a boss, that when you've achieved this level or received some award, then you know that you're of real worth or real value. All of our dignity, all of our value, and all of our worth is based on one thing. And what is that? Right, who we are in Christ, but even a more basic level, actually. Ah, there it is. Genesis 126, right? Here, let's put that one in red. Genesis 126. Because each person is made in the image of God. That in and of itself, that baseline, gives a person, gives a human dignity. And obviously that ends up having tremendous implications in our lives. And so I was going to uh, hit uh, some of these different topics here. The first being the idea, well, we've been talking through actually this whole idea of identity. So let's go over to justice. So how this impacts our lives is that by um, if everyone is made in the image of God and that that is the baseline for why they have worth, why they have value, and why they have dignity, then that means that every person, even, the, even unbelievers, are um, subject to receiving justice. In other words, justice, God's justice Real justice, legitimate justice, is not only for the unbeliever. Is someone willing to turn to Genesis, read Genesis 9, 6 for me? Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There we go. So here we have God explicitly laying out in law this idea of actually capital punishment, interestingly enough, that there is a, that man is of mankind is of enough value that um, that this idea of justice is laid out in the strongest of terms, and it's based on right there for God made man in His own image. So that has implications on our everyday life in that regard, and that also means that. God is concerned not just with horizontal justice. We talk uh, regularly about, as we should, about the impending judgment, the judgment that's going to come, ultimately, capital J, judgment, judgment day, Christ on the judgment seat. But there also is a horizontal justice that should take place within our own culture. And uh, let's turn, Carol, would you be willing to read... Micah 6, 8, which I bet there are folks in here that have that memorized. 
Uh-huh, I already hear it. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. All right. And you'll notice that that is not um, restricted to how we treat believers. That is how we are supposed to conduct ourselves in the world. We are supposed to do justice, to walk humbly. Um, also, that that means that our justice should be, well, equally applied. So let's look at James chapter 2. Where are you going with that, Sean? Okay, so James 2. And then, Sean, if you'd read verses 1 to 4, and then skip down and read verses, well, and I'll tell you 8 and 9 here in just a second. Go ahead and read 1 to 4. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Okay, so this is identifying the sin of partiality, which I think goes directly to what we're talking about here as far as personhood, as far as worth, as far as value. And we grow up in different contexts. I'm guessing that every one of us has some kind of a story where they grew up, whether it's with parents or with grandparents or in some other environment in their high school where there was, I don't know, rampant racism. You can look back on that and go, wow, like I, the things I heard in my home were terrible. That's what I grew up with. Uh, maybe you've used repeated phrases that you heard in that uh, environment that you grew up in, and it impacts the way that we see other people. And you can start to see how this has far, this whole idea of this uh, doctrine has far reaching implications because when we remove value that God has given to somebody based on the categories that we already have in our head, um, their socioeconomic status, their, uh, their race, their gender, you know, these things, we look at people and we automatically place more value on person A and less value on person B than we are already dishonoring one of the most basic foundational principle, theological uh, principles that God laid out in Genesis chapter 1. We are not demonstrating love toward those whom God has given value, and we are also not being uh, just to those folks. Go ahead, Sean, then, and go in that same chapter down to verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. All right. So, I mean, Scripture is telling us explicitly. And I think that this can be, you know, we could probably pick a few categories. And uh, all of us with one voice would, you know, yeah, that's right. And we're all on the same page. And 
those people over there, and then there are other categories that would make us feel very, very uncomfortable, right? There are, I mean, as soon as you get close, you know, we could, um, uh, we, could, we could bring up the poor and say, um, you know, we need to be careful that we're not looking at somebody that, that is clearly in a uh, depressed financial state and just assign some sort of, you know, well, the, well, that means they're lazy. If they're poor, then they're lazy because, you know, otherwise they wouldn't be poor. You know, that, you know, we can say that, and I don't think that really makes any of us feel that uncomfortable. But as soon as you start bringing up things maybe closer to race and you go, well, wait a minute, is there a, is there a potential that you have a tendency to see somebody uh, wearing some particular kind of clothing and you want to lash out and make a, a jab? You want to make a smart aleck comment because of their clothing. You want to make a smart comment um, or take a jab or take a swipe because of their name, just their name. Maybe you don't even see them. You just see the name, and you're like, and, and there's a, a negative attitude towards that person just based on those kinds of superficial things. And, um, and this is convicting. This is convicting for all of us uh, to do that. Steve, Steve's raising his hand. Do you have the microphone? Oh, there we go. Um, based on what you're saying, it, I found it challenging to, I've heard this um, statement in other churches, you know, love the sinner but hate the sin right but i find it difficult to disassociate both from each other so, so for an example whenever I, nowadays whenever i see someone wear some kind of rainbow emblem my mind immediately is assuming that they have certain values that are right unbiblical and then I, I almost immediately say okay i can't really have any relationship with you or fellowship because ultimately that's going to bring come to a bear and that's just going to lead us to be separated because we don't agree with that. So I don't. I, I find myself right. being challenged to love people that I believe don't hold to a, a godly viewpoint of the world. But. Well, and, and the thing is, uh, it's complex. We can't, um, we, we're, not, we're not mindless. We don't, you know, if they hate God, then we need to take that into account of um, how we communicate to that person. We're not ignorant about those things. But, uh, but to make predetermined um, judgments about people, um, we can very quickly slide into taking their dignity and taking their value away just immediately um, based on categories that, that, that God hasn't, they're not categories that God created for us to do that. Monica, hang on, hang on, there we go. I just had a quick comment on what Steve said about um, um, uh, loving the sinner but hating the sin. So God calls us to love people, like you said, and show them honor and dignity. He doesn't call us to judge people outside the church. So if we demonstrate God's love toward them and let God do the you know, judgment of sin, I think that helps. Yes, for sure, for sure, thank you. Rob Royce, no, I'll let you make the comment. But we do have to judge whether or not they're in the church or Correct. not, right? We do have to, if we identify that um, all have been made in the image of God, and when one sins, they've marred the image of God. In other words, who they are and what they've been conceived in, um, separating the sin and hating that from the sinner, uh, you know, I get the point, and I don't usually quibble about that. But if you've been conceived in sin, 
you're a sinner, you're, you're <laughs> sinning because you are a sinner. That right. is who you are. Right. But the good news is, as we use our judgment that God has given us, we understand that God has made it clear what his judgment is. So when we become messengers of that, we're not the ones who are judging. So the difficulty is, well, I don't want to judge, but then I keep my mouth shut and not say what God has clearly said. Right. So if I say what God has clearly said, that you're in danger of the judgment, just as I was until I was saved, but God in his mercy has come and there will be a judgment day. Unless you repent, you'll perish. I'm not the one who's doing the judging. In fact, if I keep my mouth shut, I'm judging that I'm not going to say what God has clearly revealed. So there's, there's these dynamics where I have to open my mouth. Now, from the sinner's standpoint, they're going to think that I'm very judgmental and I'm just the ambassador and the messenger. And that's where it takes true love to be able to reach out and speak that and be falsely accused because you're reaching out in love that they might live. Thank you. And, and, uh, and maybe to uh, try to apply, to connect what, what you are saying, Rob Roy, with, um, with what I'm getting at here is, is there a chance that you feel convicted as God's child to be his witness for the kingdom, but you are more likely to communicate that gospel message to person A than you are to person B. Or, sorry, not more likely, because we can't help likely or unlikely. Will you do it for one and not do it for the other for, for things that are, that are in this category up here because they need to hear the gospel? Child, poor, race, you know, they need to hear the gospel. Now you'll present it in different ways, of course, given the context, but still. Yes, Sean. Briefly, yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> you know, and it might be easy to use the cultural cliche, birds of a feather flock together, right? I mean, we all have a tendency to move towards people that are like sure. us. Everybody does. Right. But in, as Christians, we're called to move beyond that. We're called to see all as part of uh, all peoples created in the image of God, having that special mark of God on them, no matter how they look or yeah. what status they're in or anything like that. Right. Yeah. And, and as it relates to the justice piece as well, this also means that not only do we treat others, but we have to uh, be willing when it's appropriate to, to stand up for others that fit into in one of those different categories. They're not a category that we particularly, uh, that maybe we fall, you know, victim to it, if, to put it that way, I guess. Um, but we, we do have a responsibility to stand up for others. Uh, reading from Matthew 23 to 23. Um, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a uh, gnat and swallowing a camel. So... Here we have these guys that are the most knowledgeable, the most educated in the Old Testament scriptures of any of the people around, and yet their application is unjust, completely unjust, and violating Genesis, you know, their probably their elementary school education of Genesis 126 of being made in the image of God. So, um, okay. 
Um, I think this also has a particular impact um, on women. And I'm not, and I'm talking about actually more so women within, I, I think we can apply everything that, we're, that I was just talking about that we were just discussing, and one of those categories that could fit within that is also as it relates to gender and, and, and to women, but I think maybe this has a, a greater implication inside the church as it relates to women and how the church treats women. Um, again, I'm, I, am, I would imagine that many of us have, uh, that have been in the church, a participant in the local church for a, an extended period of time, have seen different people and, in particular, uh, men in positions of leadership within the church treat women poorly or to disregard them or to um, be condescending in some way. And the, again, this whole idea of being made in the image of God has, has implications on how we love and treat each other within the church. There's no question that um, God has boundaries around gender when it comes to you know, being an elder, you know, teaching, uh, uh, preaching in the church and things, but that's a pretty short list of things that are exclusive to men in God's, uh, uh, in God's schema here. And so we have to, I guess, I, I, let me put it this way. Do you, and I guess I'm speaking really to the men, do you, how do, how do you feel about the, the, the comment that we should be creating, bringing up, create, or, or, or creating an environment where we have women as brilliant theologians within our church? Like this, somehow, does that seem incongruous? But don't we really want that? Don't we want our daughters? Don't we want wives? Don't we want grandmothers to be this absolutely brilliant uh, theologians? They're... They, uh, they're of more value than, why, than just wives and childbearers, as wonderful and, and God-honoring as those things are. And we know, here you go, a little quiz question, we know that there are many women that have been integral parts of the unfolding of redemptive history, right, when we look throughout Scripture. Can we get some names? Okay, Deborah. What was it? Oh, Lydia, Lydia, thank you. Esther, good, I like it. Ruth, Naomi, yes, Ruth and Naomi. Priscilla, the Marys, yes, good. Good, Mary, Mary Magdalene. Uh, what was that? Eve, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Abigail, that, uh, yeah, was originally uh, Nabel's, yeah, Nabel's wife. Yes, Sarah, and yeah, we had a Priscilla. Any more? Whose daughters? Philip's daughters. Yes, good. Um, I also have. Let me see. I have on my list. Oh, we got any more before I? Ezekiel's wife. You got me on that one. Okay. <laughs> Um, let's see. So here's the list that I have. Did we have a Sarah? Yeah, there we go. Rebecca, Miriam, Rahab. We heard a uh, Deborah. We heard Ruth, 
Hannah. Did someone say Hannah? Okay, Esther, Anna, she was prophetess. Mary, which we had uh, uh, Gary cover the Marys. Uh, Elizabeth. Um, Phoebe, I'm glad you said that. Okay, go to Romans 16.1. This is what's great. Does anybody know what we know about Phoebe? Yeah, what, and what, okay, good, just oh, go, like, yeah, I won't, I won't kill it, just I'll let you, uh, Romans 16, verse 1. Hold on, hold on, hold on, let's oh. get, get you on the record here, okay, go ahead. Oh, the last word in that verse is, is the um, <laughs> trick. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at... Century? Sure. Uh, was that was that the entirety of the verse? Okay, keep going through verse two. <laughs> that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many there we go. and of myself as well. Okay, thank you. That's what I was getting at. So she's a patron of many, which means she is most likely wealthy or, or has access to money. And so now you're talking about a woman that's in some position, even in that culture, that's in some position of power, some position of influence. She has access to money. She's being wise with the money. She is uh, financially backing the ministry. And that kind of puts her in, in a different category than maybe we think of a lot of the women in Scripture as well. Gary. Whoever's next, go ahead and turn to Acts 18. Does that necessarily qualify her as an officer in the church? Uh, we can, let's take that another time. Deaconess thing. I, I, there, there's, uh, there's a whole discussion on, and we will have it at one point, about deaconesses. Okay. Is that what your question has to do with? Or are you just yeah. asking about Phoebe in particular or the Phoebe. role of... of Phoebe in particular, because it was brought up that some believe that she might have been a deaconess. Yeah, that's a big topic, later topic. We're big people. Yes, you are. Which, <laughs> it, that deserves a more comprehensive answer than we're going to get in the next 30 seconds. <laughs> What's that? Oh, Chloe, nice. All right, who's got, uh, who's got, got Acts 18? What do you want? Uh, so I want, I want to, to point something out here. So for, start out by reading Acts 18, verse 2. Where am I here? Acts 18, 2. I'm getting there. See, I'm slow. Well, but you're a big boy. We yeah. made that clear. <laughs> And he, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Okay, all right, stop right there. All right, so Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, re, uh, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So we have presented kind of a natural introduction of this couple, which is Aquila and Priscilla, and that's how... 
uh, it's laid out kind of the order of how they were met. Uh, Paul meets Aquila, and then, by the way, his wife Priscilla. But if you go down to, in the same chapter, to verse 26, you'll watch something interesting kind of happen with the language. Go ahead. Okay. 1826. So, oh, and this is talking about... Uh, uh, this is about Apollos. So remember Apollos? He's, yes. he's knowledgeable in the scriptures, but he had to be pulled aside, right? Okay, go ahead. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So you'll notice there that actually there's a little, a little switch of things where it's actually Priscilla that is listed before Aquila. And, you know, we don't want to, to establish an entire uh, theological... <laughs> You know, doctrine off of that, but I do think that it is not a mistake that Priscilla is listed first here. She was just kind of named as Aquila's wife at the beginning, but then at uh, by the time you get here, where Apollos is out there boldly preaching the word, the two of them, and you could I think legitimately say, namely Priscilla, pulled him aside privately and said, "Hey, here is the." Word of God more accurately. So all, all I'm saying is that whether you take any stock in the fact that she's named first or not, she's clearly part of, with her husband, um, the education, the furthering of the education of Apollos in presenting the gospel to the public. So uh, women hold a very important place, and it's uh, incumbent on us to make sure that we are uh, recognizing that, encouraging that, and encouraging that in our daughters, by the way, as well. Uh, okay, the last category here is respect. Because of our identity in the image of God, all should not, uh, should not only be worthy of receiving justice, but also respect. Um, let me see, I had a quote here I thought I was going to read. Um, I'm not sure. All right, this is what Tripp writes. We are, we are called to look in the face of our enemy, even the face of someone who may otherwise disgust us, and see the image of God himself. Only when we do this, we will treat another with the love, respect, honor, and goodness to which we have been called. We are in a cultural moment where respect has been replaced by outrage. Little cultural gentleness remains. We react toward those with whom we disagree with the harshest of responses and accusations. In many cases, it seems like we are not content with disagreeing with people who we are convinced are wrong. We want to harm them or to erase them in some way. We seem to have lost our ability to have civil discourse where ideas are discussed with dignity, restraint, and respect. We seem to think it's valid not only to critique people's words, but also to judge their motives. Close quote. And I, I think that is absolutely inherent, and I don't think that's unique to our age, but it does seem to be bearing itself out in a um, particular way. So this doesn't mean that we withhold truth, which is kind of to the point there that Rob Roy was getting at earlier, but it does give us some boundaries about how we communicate it. So we don't stop providing the truth. We don't say, hey, because that person believes something completely different, um, and that because they, too, are made in the image of God, therefore I cannot, as, kind of as what Rob Roy is getting at, I can't judge. I'm not, I'm not in a position to judge. That's not true at all. But the point is that you must, because they are made in the image of God, communicate that in a particular way. And we can see that in Ephesians 4.15. Who's got the microphone? All right, Glenda. Ephesians 4.15. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. All right, how do we speak the truth, Glenda? In Christ, in the truth, in love. There it is. In love. In, in love. In love. Now, in love can take a lot of different, you know, shapes, but what that is speaking to is the motivation, though. You should be speaking to someone the truth in love. And that is, of course, tied to the fact that they have dignity because they were made in the image of God. This impacts how parents should raise their children. And in fact, um, are you still in Ephesians? Mm -hmm. Go ahead and flip over to Ephesians 6.4. Dad's in the room. You need to hear this. I had to hear it too. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So even within the house, dads, I'm, I'm, I'm the rough and tumble type. I love to throw the kids around, still do, um, even the big ones. And, um, and, but we need to make sure that that doesn't cross a line into provoking our children. And that also means that when we discipline them um, or provide instruction, that we're doing so in love. They too, it is incumbent on all of us uh, within the church and seeing the little ones run around here and that are back in the, in the room down the hall there, that we are teaching them regularly to be showing dignity toward other people. That, we're, that even though they may not understand the, uh, the depth of the implications that is associated with Genesis 126 of being made in the image of God, that we're still just embedding those principles into the kids. We must show value and dignity to these people, to older folks, not just to kids their age, to people that look different than them or that look different than their parents. And, um, and you have to be intentional about teaching your kids those principles. All right, some, uh, any other comments? Uh, the, the parable of the um, unforgiving servant comes to mind too about yes. respecting fellow people. I mean, if uh, the one that was forgiven, the, was it the thousand talents? saw the one that owed him a hundred denarii and wrung his neck. demanded yeah. his justice. And I think if we understand how much of a debt we owe God for our sin, that really would help us to relate yeah. to each other. Or, I, or another one is the, you know, the Good Samaritan where you see clearly God has put physically in this parable, physically in the Samaritan's path or in the... Uh, um, uh, the uh, the priest and Levi. Priest, thank yeah. you. Thank goodness. Uh, right in his path, somebody that is in need, but because he was, because of the identity uh, of the man, he didn't. He didn't want anything to him. So good stuff. Anyone else? Anything additional? Somebody has to have one more. There's space for one more comment. Go ahead, Sean. So I was privileged uh, the last couple of years. Um, to be a part of helping with teaching and worldview classes at GCU. So I was, uh, I was grading and on occasion was asked to teach classes. Um, and in the worldview class there, they developed a text um, to teach worldview in a world comprehensive way and teach Christian worldview. And, and a lot of the authors were contributing to that were reformed theologians, and you could see it coming out in the text again and again, which I was rejoicing in. 
Um, but wanted to mention this topic was central to our discussion of you know human dignity and what it means, you know why all are to be respected, all humans are to be respected. So we asked the question: What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What what does that how does that distinguish us from the animals or from other life, right? So different uh, theologians have, you know, commented on this, but the things that keep resurfacing are things like our, the spirituality that we have, the spiritual capacity that we have, the, the moral capacity that we have, intellectual capacity that we have, and the creative capacities that we have. These things mirror God, albeit in imperfect ways, right, or imperfect ways, uh, post-fall, right? So um, it isn't perfect, but, but these, are, these are wondrous things. Um, and, and one day, they'll be restored. They'll be perfect again, you know, in heaven, right? So we will, you know, Jesus, it's, I, somebody can probably, Rob Roy, um, maybe, uh, or Pete, maybe you can quote the verse, but it tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father, right? Exact, perfect image. He's the perfect image. And so we're all, yeah, we're all moving toward that end, right? To the glory of God right. forever and ever. So praise God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for um, already answering our prayer at the beginning of blessing the time of the engagement that we've had. Lord, we pray that this would not just be an exercise of of uh, pontificating and opining and thinking these lofty thoughts, but that, uh, that they would strike us to the core and that you would bring them to mind when we are tempted uh, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. May you be glorified in the remainder of the day and in particular of the worship service that follows. In Christ's name, amen.